0: Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today, our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, will begin a new series on the life of Samuel the prophet. You can follow along with this message in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. You can also find our weekly message outline and many other resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood app. Beautiful word, Brad. Beautiful word. How many of us do, starting this new year, we want to be different this year? We want to be changed. We're willing to have less of us. That's what he was singing, wasn't it? Less of me, more of Christ. So that that's what shows. Today we begin a new series that's called Belonging to God. And it's a series that will focus on the life of Samuel. Samuel was born about 1,100 years before the birth of Christ, so about 3,000 years ago. And he was unique among leaders of Israel because he actually filled three offices. He was a priest, he was a judge, and a prophet, all three. But he was even more distinct because he belonged to God and he served God his entire life. Now, Samuel functioned as a priest by offering sacrifices. And if you'll read with us in this series in 1 Samuel, you'll see at 1 Samuel 7 and at 10, he offered sacrifices. He was also a judge. Now, judges administrated the law of Israel, the law of God in Israel after the death of Joshua. Mark gave you sort of a quick survey of Jewish history. You know, you had Adam... That was born, he fell. Later, God instituted the covenant, made promises to Abraham. Years later, when Israel was taken into captivity in Egypt, Moses led them out as a deliverer. And in the wilderness, Moses received the Ten Commandments, the guide for faith and life given to the Jews. Who followed Moses as leader? Say it again. Joshua, Joshua. But after Joshua died, there were people called judges who administrated the law, enforced the law. Remember, the law of God was over the civil and the criminal. It was everything that guided the nation of Israel. They they also led the nation militarily against enemies, and they were raised up, to turn the nation from idolatry back to the worship of God very often. And there's a book in in the Old Testament called Judges. Have you read the book of Judges? Does it seem crazy? I mean, who thinks Samson was a great godly man? No, he was a disaster. And you say, well, that always bothered me that I thought he was supposed to be a spiritual leader and he's a disaster. He was written and shown to be a disaster. He had some areas of faithfulness. But the book of Judges shows us that these men were good and then bad. Good and and also women. There were several female judges as well. So that these judges didn't implement God's law obediently, righteously. Some did, some didn't. And it led the way for the monarchy to begin. That's where Samuel was. Samuel was the last judge, but he also was the one who was the bridge into the monarchy. And he anointed the first two kings of Israel. What were their names? Saul and and David. And then he served as their prophet so that he spoke for God to these kings to, to correct, to guide. To give God's word to these kings. Now Samuel lived 3,000 years ago. So are you thinking, well, what relevance does that have for today? For me? Does anybody, anybody asking that question? We live in a different world culturally. We certainly live in a different world technologically. But humans are the same. We're the same mentally. We're the same emotionally. We're the same physically. More importantly, we're the same spiritually. Romans 15, 4 basically lays that principle. And aren't we called to belong to God completely for our entire lives? So the life of Samuel... Is a good model for us, a good example. And also, the point that's true is that God hasn't changed. God can't mature, He doesn't get new insight or information. So, God never changes. So, as we read the scripture, the Old and the New Testament, we learn about the nature of God. And we learn how to relate to Him by observing how people who are portrayed in the scriptures. Related to him. The beautiful thing about the scripture. And I think it's a. Evidence of its truthfulness. And its inspiration. Is that the Old Testament and New Testament writers. Never covered the mistakes of the people. Because how, easy can, how easily can you identify with someone who looks perfect on the outside. Can you identify with them. Come on Clint. Y'all wake up out there. But when you see someone who's flawed, it's a little easier to say, well, that guy's worse than me. There might be a chance for me to, to make it here with God, to relate to God. So we see people and all their mistakes and all their sins in the scriptures so that we can learn from them and identify with them and see that they are not unlike us, though they may have lived thousands of years ago. In this message today, we'll see many of the same issues that some of you are dealing with. Family dysfunction, marital communication problems, infertility, jealousy, parenting issues, worship, and prayer. And all of those are relevant to us today. The title to today's message is Asking. And it's a reference to earnest. Effectual prayer. Take out your message guide if you haven't already. The outline is the first two panels. Typically, I put a, a theme verse that becomes a memory verse for small groups. And let me say, if, if you're not part of a small group, let me urge you as a, to take a step uh, this, in this new year. And say, I'm going I'm to take some affirmative steps to promote my growth. Become part of a group. Share your life with them. Let others share their lives with you. And today, this afternoon, we have at five o'clock a um, opportunity to become informed and and participate and sign up for small groups and for ministry opportunities. We do membership class beginning at three. So I'll urge you to be part of that as well. But the theme in memory verse is this. And I want y'all to read this with me. The earnest prayer... Of a righteous person Do you believe that? Do you really believe that the prayer of a righteous person matters? So that means you pray a whole lot, right? Because you see, our practice always reveals our principles. What we say we believe is a whole lot less convincing than what we show we believe. That's what reveals what we truly embrace. So we'll focus today on Samuel's mother, whose name is Hannah. Hebrew, it means gracious or favored. And Hannah prayed for a child and she received Samuel. So we want to learn from her How to pray with passion by reflecting on Hannah's desperate cry for help. Praying with passion first is often a response to distress. Now, if you're using this Bible that we sell, I can tell you that we'll be on pages 224 and 5. We're just going to work right through this, and we will be doing this for um, the next couple of months. We're going to work through this the life of Samuel systematic, systematically. There, were, there was a man named Elkanah, who lived in Ramah in the region of Zaph in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zaph of Ephraim. Elkanah had two wives. Anybody see a problem emerging? <laughs> Hannah. And Penana, Does that trouble anybody? What troubles you about it? He has two wives. Besides not being real wise, what else is it? You know, and, and those of you who are, have been around a while, you know I'm saying, question this Bible. Question this Bible. Look at it. Take it apart. Examine it. What does this mean? Is it okay to have more than one wife? It's not what it means at all. God did tolerate polygamy. It's interesting then that God tolerates some things that really aren't his will or his best for us. But he never approved or endorsed polygamy. In fact, God's plan for marriage is stated right in the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And that was that a woman shall leave her family, leave her parents, be united to her husband, and the two will become one. That's the standard for marriage. Beginning in Genesis, Jesus quoted it in John as well. And the fact that Penana had children... And Hannah did not, it says, was the cause of great distress. Now, if you look at this passage, Hannah is named first. Now, that likely means she was the first wife. It might mean she was also the most important wife, the most favored wife. But it certainly means that she came first. We continue in verse 3. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord's armies. Anybody bothered by that? What is Shiloh? Where's worship supposed to be happening? Jerusalem. So you ought to go, what's going on here? Well, remember what the tabernacle was. It was not a building It was made of cloth and skins. It was erected on poles. And it was made to move. So it was built first in the wilderness. And it housed some important items. What was the most important item? Ark of the covenant. And what was inside the Ark of the covenant? Three things. A jar of manna. Aaron's rod that budded. Third item. The two, well, there were two, there were some four things, but the third one was the commandments. The tablets containing the commandments were there. There was no temple yet. There was no King David yet. King David was the one that established Jerusalem as the center of power. The temple would be built much later by Solomon. So worship is happening in Shiloh in a tabernacle which is mobile. It could be moved. The priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Now the tabernacle would remain in Shiloh for over 300 years until Israel at war took the Ark of the Covenant into battle. They lost the battle and the Ark was stolen by the Philistines. You know where the Ark is today? Who knows? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's never been located. Now you say, why are you teaching us all this history? Remember my approach. I'm teaching different things for different people in this room. I call it putting cookies on a lot of different shelves. For some of you, history really interests you, biblical history. For others, you say, well, that's not practical. I don't want to hear it. Well, here's what you do when I'm preaching. You say, God, is this for me? What's not for you, you ignore. What is for you, you lean into. Everything's not for everybody, okay? But some of you love this biblical history and this background and knowing how the scripture works together. My wife is like that. She's a real scholar. She loves knowing all of that. And some of you do, although there's only three of you that do. <laughs> Verse four. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Peninnah, and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. Now notice there's an asterisk there because there's an alternative translation which I really favor, which is because he loved Hannah, he would give her a choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. It seems from this that Elkanah favored Hannah or at least felt tenderly toward her because she had no children. She was childless. So he was giving her a special part of the sacrifice. So what, what's happening here? Favoritism. Which is a bad idea in a family, but especially among two wives. So here's what's happening. He's gone. He's offered the sacrifice. They'd be given the portions of the meat back. They would disperse it to the family. Well, here's here's what's actually happening. Hannah is getting the filet mignon. Penana is getting maybe some skirt steak. Perhaps some hot dogs. Now, I love hot dogs. Well, it wasn't pork, so we'll say they're all beef hot dogs. I love hot dogs, and I think they're perfect food because they're round on both ends. But... But what's happening is this favoritism sparks, arouses jealousy among these two women. Well, why do you think that? Well, look at the next verse. So, so because of what Elkanah did and what he gave, so Peninnah would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. That's a striking statement, isn't it? People in this culture often blamed women who were um, not fertile, who, who had infertility, with doing something for which God was punishing them. It was ex- in fact, it was extended to virtually all illness and disease. You know, someone would have a problem, some malformation, and they'd say, well, I wonder what he did that made God angry. And this passage actually says this twice. In verse 5, it says the Lord had given her no children. In verse 6, it says the Lord had kept her from having children. Does that alarm anyone? Does it? It's not how we see God, is it? So what does this mean? It says twice, the Lord prevented. Does it mean that God was punishing Hannah for some sin? This is an issue we need to deal with, isn't it? Because a lot of us have health issues. We have struggles. We have mental, emotional issues. There's some things wrong. Virtually every one of us has something wrong that we struggle with. So does this mean God doesn't care that God's judging us, that God's punishing us? Is that what it means? I don't think so but God is sovereign over not only our entire lives but also the particular parts of it including our physical bodies but there's no indication in this text that Hannah had done anything wrong so when we see an issue like this and it raises a question we have to say what else does the Bible say on this point? Because we interpret scripture with scripture. Jesus spoke about illness. Look at this passage. You know this passage. John 9, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? See the assumption? The assumption is he did something wrong and God's punishing him. It wasn't because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Jesus really didn't answer the question, did he? What he said is this is not a judgment for sin, but it is an opportunity to trust God. Even though Hannah was not being judged by God, I think she may have felt abandoned by him. Is that fair? A lot of us feel that way, don't we? We're struggling with some illness. There's there's something tragic happens in our family. And even though we, we may not say it aloud, we wonder, what have I done? Is that fair? Stu, you see it a lot. People, something comes out of a, a test, MRI, or x-ray, and people's responses all, they may not say it, but what, what have I done? What has God done to me? What is this happening to me? What, what, what's going on? I think that's human and normal. And we wonder about those things. And so I think Hannah may have felt abandoned by him. And I think in this issue of infertility. Many women that struggle with this. They they do feel some isolation. They 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 may even feel some abandonment. This is a very painful thing. I think it's I think it's even hard for men to completely identify with at times. Because for a woman it's it's part of who she is. It's it's in the core of her being. And when she can't have children and her sister has a lot of them and her friends have them and they don't seem to have any difficulty at all either conceiving or carrying children, it can make a woman question how God sees her. Is that fair? Year after year at verse 7, it was the same. Peninnah would taunt Hannah As they went to the tabernacle, and each time Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. She was she was so upset. She was in torment. I mean, think about her position. Because she lived three thousand years ago, doesn't mean she was different than any of you women would feel today. Same emotional self. She had to share her husband. Imagine that. You say, well, I already share him with ESPN. I can't imagine if there was another woman in the house. And that smartphone, we don't have any smartphones. We have stupid phones. He spends his time right there buried in that thing. She had to share her husband. She was unable to have children. She was continually harassed and ridiculed by her husband's other wife. And her husband was no help either. Look at verse eight. Why are you crying, Hannah? He doesn't know? Your husband ever said, asked you a question like that and you, you didn't answer him by telling him. You said, you don't know? Have you been living in this house? Have you seen what's going on in my life? Do you know what's happening with my friends? Do you understand what's going on at work? So he asked that unhelpful question. Why are you crying? And then to compound it, why aren't you eating? And then this is really a helpful question. Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than 10 sons? You understand that? That's right. I mean, that's very helpful. Leanne's upset about something. I'll say, you got me. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world if you have me. Who thinks that's satisfying to her? (laughs) I don't think it was a very helpful suggestion. How many of you women think it was helpful? Wanted support. She wanted sincere understanding. She want, she would desire some empathy, but not this self centered, unhelpful approach to her problem. This woman feels harassed. She's sorrowful. She's fearful. She's helpless. She's hopeless. And now she may even be ashamed of how she's feeling. You ever struggled with that? People ask you questions. It doesn't help you. It compounds your feeling because you just feel more guilty for what you're feeling. It's a hopeless place, isn't it? But God tends to take our hopeless situations, our total inability, our final Failure as his starting point You know, people who are in recovery of various kinds, AA in a celebrate recovery, understand this phrase called "hitting rock bottom." But you know what? I really think hitting rock bottom applies to all of us in different situations. It may not be about a substance that we're abusing, but it might just be self-centeredness, self-directed living. And God has to get us to the end of ourselves before we look to Him. You see, our hopelessness, our helplessness aren't ever barriers to God's work. In fact, God's greatest work will almost always be based on our utter inability. You feel hopeless about something today? Do you feel helpless Maybe you're ready for God to intercede. Remember what Paul said? Paul had had great visions from God. He'd been to the seventh heaven. He'd been taught deep truths. And he was given what? A thorn in the flesh to pierce that pride. And he said three times, please take this away. I think think he was losing his sight just from other... Contextually, but that's just my opinion. He said, God, take it away. And God said, No. My grace works best in what? In weakness. In weakness. Are you weak? You may be primed for God's intervention. Are you hopeless? That's when He arrives. Are you helpless? It's only when you quit trying to manipulate things that God takes over. When God's people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without any human solutions, we turn to him in desperation. And he starts. See, when you're in trouble and something you do bails you out, it doesn't bring you closer to God it separates you from God because you become more self-reliant. And self-reliance is the, is the enemy of faith. Faith consists of total dependence. Total dependence. Anybody in here have some trouble? Let me see some hands. You have some trouble, you have something you can't fix, something you can't figure out. You ready to cast that on cry on God? Is it time for you to give your problem, your trouble, your pain to him? Praying with passion requires honesty. Hannah's sorrow, her emotional and her 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 emotional pain, her suffering, her misery drove her to cry out to God for help. Verse 9. Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance to the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. She was honestly expressing her pain. And she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, I will give him back to you. And he will be yours for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he's been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. Who knows what kind of vow that was? Nazarite vow. There were only three people in the scripture who had a lifelong Nazarite vow, which was made by the parent. Who were they? Samuel? Samson? Who's the third one? John the Baptist, that's right. Only three. Because the Nazarite vow did mean you never cut your hair, which I'm thinking about taking it on, but I'm worried it'll pull what's left out if it gets too much weight. But you also never drank any wine or intoxicating beverage. And there was a third one, you didn't ever touch a corpse. You didn't come near a corpse, even the corpse of a deceased relative. Those were the three conditions. But the Nazarite vow typically was for 30 days. It might go up to 60 or 90, but it was strictly voluntary. And so there are only three we know of that was for lifelong commitment. Now Hannah took her torment. The, The main thing I want you to see here. Is Hannah's Hannah's in torment, right? Anybody being tormented or maybe you have been tormented by someone or a situation or a condition? The real key question is, what did you do with it? Where did you take it? Hannah took her torment to God. See, we have a choice to make. When you're troubled, when you're fearful, when... You're failing in some way, physically, financially, some way. We have a choice to make. Do we take that pain, that fear, that anxiety, even that anger to God? Or do we go away from God? Doubting that he cares. Because you see, the issue is not whether we're angry, whether we're fearful, whether we're frightened. It's what we do with it. Anybody here ever gotten angry with God? Come on, let me see some hands, a bunch of chickens. If you don't get angry with God, you're just suppressing it. Because we have this human emotions, we're fearful, and anger protects fear. Anybody ever shouted at God in prayer? Let me see some bold ones here, come on. He already knows, why not tell him? Sometimes there's nothing better than stand out in your backyard and shout. Of course, if you have one of those homeowners associations, you might get kicked out. But but see, express your honest emotion to God. I hope y'all know this, but a marriage that never has conflict is not necessarily indicative of a very intimate marriage. Sometimes it takes conflict to break down barriers to intimacy. So a little passion in the house, and I'm talking about arguing, is not always bad for the marriage if it builds intimacy. And sometimes us expressing even our doubts about God actually bring us into closer relationship with Him. Does this make sense? Her burden prayer was spoken with boldness, with freedom. And that's what Hebrews 4 says you go boldly into the presence of God. You belong to Him. She knew whom she was speaking to, she was convinced He would hear her cry. Now, she wanted the joy of bearing a child. Bringing a, a child into the world. But she was willing to give him back to God. Does that sound like bargaining to anybody? But I thought we weren't supposed to bargain with God. Is that, is that right? Come on now. I'm going to send y'all back in the cold. Unless y'all y'all got to wake up in here. I thought we weren't supposed to. Here's the difference. The sincerity of her vow is distinct and unique. And here's the key to every answered prayer. Her prayer aligned with God's will. Look at this, First John 5. And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our request, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. Now, did that say that you can ask for anything you want and you'll get it? But it said, if you ask for anything that's in accordance with his will, you'll get it. And that's like in John 15. If my words remain in you, ask whatever you will. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and you'll get it. Because you've been changed, conformed, your thinking, your request will conform to the will of God. And that's what we see here. Verse 12. As she was praying to the Lord, Elah watched her seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound he thought she'd been drinking must you come here drunk he demanded throw away your wine oh no sir she can you identify with her her rival has ridiculed her her husband has misunderstood her she thinks God's forsaken her and now the priest accuses her of being drunk. But she defended herself. See, Hannah Hannah knew who she was. And Hannah spoke honestly and directly back to the priest. And she said, "Oh no, sir, I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged." And I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again. And she was no longer sad. Why did Eli think she was drunk? She was just praying. Honestly, emotionally. So why did he think she was drunk? He was unfamiliar with seeing people pour out their hearts passionately to God this is a time in the history of Israel when as it says in in Judges the people did whatever was right in their own eyes so worship was dry and dusty and formal and unfeeling this is a bad time regarding faith in Israel People still went through the motions formally. But he hadn't seen someone in there crying out to God. Surprising, isn't it? But then it said that she began to eat and she was no longer sad. Why? Had anything changed? What changed? She had given it to God. You think that's all? She believed he heard her and he would answer. You know, when I ask a question like that, the answer isn't really implied no. That's a trick. But was it because she just knew she could trust God? Is that enough? It should be enough. It may be that she got a word of assurance from the Spirit. It may be she was told, yes, you'll have a child. But we don't see that. But we know this, she went in there passionately and unburdened herself before God. You know what that feels like? Have you ever ever laid out your pain to God so that when you got up, you didn't feel the pain? Because you truly handed it off. You truly handed it off. Now, Forrest was Hannah's life still full of trouble. Same woman at home. Same harassment. But her life was now marked by trust for God. Which she had expressed based on her knowledge of him. See, here's a point I want us to get. Don't raise your hand in this, but you can raise it in your mind. Who in here is miserable? Suffering, full of angst, pain, doubt, hopeless, fearful, all that. Okay, here it comes. Your misery is not circumstantial. Your misery isn't caused externally. It's not circumstantial. It's attitudinal. It's attitudinal. And if we truly trust God, we can give our struggles and our pain to him, believing he cares for us. You see what I'm saying? See, we're still living too human when if something's going wrong, you know, something's not like we want it. I mean, I'm losing my hair. I'm losing my looks. I'm putting on some weight. My job's not going well. I don't like my co-worker. You know, I've got this problem, that problem. I'm irritated by this. If that's what decides whether we have peace, we're going to be miserable. Because your life is going to constantly be filled with those kinds of frustrations. So our lives and our peace can't be based on our circumstances. It must be based on our belief that we can trust God. And Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good. But there's a condition for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Look at Psalm 55. Give you an Old Testament verse. Give your burdens to the Lord. He will take care of you. And he will not permit the godly to slip and fall. Doesn't mean you won't suffer. Doesn't mean you won't lose your health. Doesn't mean you won't lose your job. Doesn't mean you won't lose your finances. But you will not lose your relationship with the one who loves you eternally. The thing, the only thing that matters, eternity. Doesn't mean circumstances won't be hard. 1 Peter 5, 7, the New Testament says, cast your cares on him. Why? Why can you cast your cares on him? Come on, chick, why? What's the rest of that verse? Say it. Because he cares for you. Cast your cares on him. Don't cling unto yourself. Some of us roll up in our misery, don't we? Cast your cares on him. Because he, the God of heaven's armies, cares for you. Is there something you need to cast on God? Believing, knowing. He cares for you. And finally, praying with passion, which is based on a relationship with God, results in faithfulness. Verse 19. The entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. You can see that this family was very faithful in observing the law and in worship of God and and, and meeting all those expectations scripturally. Then they returned home to Ramah. When Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her plea. And in due time, she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel. For she said, I asked the Lord for him. And Hebrew, Samuel, or Shemuel is the way it would be said um, in Hebrew. Means asked of God or heard by God. And so she said, I asked the Lord for him. The next year, Elkanah and his family went to, on their annual trip to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, and Hannah didn't go. She, he, she told her husband, wait until the boy is weaned. Then I will take him to the tabernacle and leave him there with the Lord permanently. That's shocking, isn't it? Whatever you think is best, Elkanah agreed. Stay here for now. And may the Lord help you keep your promise. Does he sound nervous? What do you think? I think he's nervous. Because look at Elkanah. Elkanah, he he, he keeps all the rules. He keeps all the obligations. He does everything he's supposed to do to carry out faith obediently. But he doesn't appear to know God the way Hannah does. You see that? Hannah knows God. She's not hesitant to say, I'm not going back and offer sacrifices for several years. And it made him nervous is what I think. It made him nervous. So she stayed home and nursed the boy until he was weaned. How long does it take to wean a child? How long? Nine months. You know how long it did in Israel? Three years. Three, oh, you went, <laughs> Get that image out of your mind. But I want you to understand something about this. I did a little research psych- about psychology and all that. The first three years of a child's life is key to that child developing a sense of Security. A sense of self, brain development, mental, emotional, physical development. So this nurturing, this this warm connection in these first three years was pivotal in giving Samuel the assurance to serve God. As strange as it seems that she would give her child over at this young age. When the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle in Shiloh. They brought a three-year-old bull for a sacrifice and a basket, an ephah, 20 quarts of flour and some wine. And after sacrificing the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked, I'm the woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he has granted my request. Now I'm giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole Life. And they worshiped the Lord there. What was she feeling? Hannah desired more than just a child for herself, she desired a man for God. And she gave back to God. What he had graciously given her, a son. Here's a hard question for us parents Do you desire to give your children to God? Now, I'm not saying go drop them off somewhere and not pick them back up. <laughs> you say, well, some days I'd like to do that, but no. Do you desire to give your child? Back to the one who gave that child to you. Be careful with your answer. Because it requires a lot. Raising children for God requires first that God be the focus of your life. Faith is caught more than it's taught. You know, I wasn't a, a believer. I mean, I went to church all my life. But I wasn't truly born again until I was 20. But I'll tell you this, there was never a day in my house that God wasn't real because the Spirit of God dwelt in my mother and there was no equivocation. She wasn't a preachy woman, but she was a living woman. That's the first step, parents. That's the first step. Also, then we train them. We train them in the scripture. We train them to know God. We train them to follow His word. We we teach them to listen for His voice. We teach our children that God cares about them and He'll speak to them if they'll listen. Do you want to raise a child for God? It requires some effort to raise a child that belongs to God his or her entire life. You know, our church is set up to help you. We do dedication. We don't baptize infants in this church. We dedicate them. But dedication is a parent committing to raise this child to know God. We have great ministries. You know, if you look in your program today, there's several events that are set up for children and students. I want to urge you parents, not only... Do you teach them, talk to them about God, but involve them in things that train them? Well, he doesn't want to go. She doesn't want to go. Well, you need to know why there's no spiritual interest. And you need to be in that. It might be time for you to go as well along with them. Do we want to be a church who raises our children to belong to God their whole lives? Boy, I hope God raises someone, a great missionary, a great preacher, a business person whose ethics are never variable, whose life is focused on Christ in every year, not in a self-righteous way, but in a true way, as we heard sung about, that the light of Christ shines so clearly that everyone will see. Counselors will be here this morning to talk with you, to pray with you. We have membership class today. If you say, I need to make some steps, it may be the first step is to membership class at three o'clock today. And then you could sign up for small groups and ministries at five. So come, I'm gonna pray and then we'll stack our chairs and you'll be dismissed. Father, I pray that we would be able to talk to you the way Hannah did. I pray that we would know you well enough to pray prayers that are in keeping with your will, prayers that you will always answer. Lord, we want to belong to you. Show us how. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Please stack your chairs. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. If you have any questions about this message or you would like to request prayer, we encourage you to visit our website at brookwoodchurch.org forward slash get help. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.